One of the noblest and most beautiful things we human beings can do is to show gratitude and respect to those that have helped us shape our lives, give us purpose and meaning and passion. Therefore, I am uniquely humbled and honored to present this special program honoring my great mentor, the special program titled A Vision for the 21st Century, celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Rebbe's leadership. Six revolution, revolutionary principles that can transform your life and the world. So though, yes, my personal mentor, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the book Toward a Meaningful Life that many of you may be familiar with, The Wisdom of the Rebbe, but I don't just see him as my mentor. I see him as someone, as a true visionary, whose teachings and guidance and directing and leadership has the tool, formula and the tools to empower us all to actually transform our lives and transform the very world in which we live. And I don't say that in any over-exaggerated form. I truly and firmly believe that when his teachings and his approach, which of course distills the teachings that go back thousands of years, back to Moses at Sinai, and even prior to that, include in them a blueprint to deal with every challenge we face, to empower us with the tools necessary to not just deal with difficulties and setbacks, but actually to thrive and grow and actualize our utmost potential in being the best we can be in fulfilling the purpose and calling of our lives. And this program is dedicated to that, being that today is the, seventh, the beginning of the 70th year of his leadership. He assumed leadership in the Hebrew month of Shabbat, the 10th day, in 1950. And here we are now in the year 2020. 2020 vision. So a vision for the 21st century to appreciate one's teachings and contributions, it helps dramatically to understand the context, the historical context. Because when we look at our, the times in which we live, the generation in which we live, and we see all its aspects, then we could see who is the true visionary, the true leader that can help us navigate, understand, and plot a course into the future. So, please join me on this journey, and we'll begin with a little backdrop. I think an interesting way to capture the paradox of our times, which on one hand, unprecedented breakthroughs in technology, in medicine, in science, in so many fields, to the point of longevity, life expectancy, has literally doubled in the past hundred years and so many other benchmarks of tremendous progress. On the other hand, where do we stand in our personal lives? Relationships, identity, family, personal happiness, the addictions we, need to de we deal with and the help we look to, deal to, to solve those issues, the emptiness, the loneliness. On one hand, we're more connected than ever, but on the other hand, you can say we're more disconnected than ever. 
But these paradoxes do not appear in a vacuum. A very interesting talk delivered by, of all people, an admiral who reached a four-star in the Navy, U.S. Navy, four-star is the highest, highest uh, level. His name was Admiral Hyman Rickover. He was considered to be the father of the nuclear submarine. In 1957, 63 years ago, he delivered a vital, important talk at the banquet of the annual scientific assembly of the Minnesota State Medical Association in St. Paul, Minnesota. And this is what he said. Very interesting, tremendous insight. He said that today in 1957, 94% of energy comes from fossil fuels, gas, coal, oil. Essentially, from things that are outside of the human being. In 1850, a little more than 100 years ago, 93% of energy was generated by human beings, of course, also using animals. This isn't a small change. This dramatically changed the entire world, especially the Western world. And to put it in his words, he says that today machines furnish every American industrial worker with energy equivalent to that of 244 men. While at least 2,000 men push the automobile along the road and his family is supplied with 33 faithful household helpers due to technology. Each locomotive engineer controls energy equivalent to that of 100,000 men. Each jet pilot of 700,000 men. And that was in 1957. 63 years later, with a computer, with the internet, with all the advancements, and we still haven't seen most of it, these numbers all astronomically, astronomically grow and explode. What is the implication of this? It's a great benchmark to understand where we are. In 1850, most of the day, we were sweating on a field just to get enough food to sustain ourselves and anything extra we were able to trade or sell. Today, that could all be done without us having to play, exert any effort. You can press a button. Today, Prime, Amazon Prime, you put in one order and in an hour or two, you get exactly what you need or want. So what implications are there? As he explains in his lecture, number one is wealth skyrocketed in ways, astronomical ways that we can't even imagine. Because those that control those machines and control that energy it's far more than just controlling a farm or two or even an entire city of farms. And the second thing which I want to mostly emphasize is leisure, the birth of leisure. What happens with all this free time? Now that we don't have to sweat under the sun and all the energy is being generated through machines and through fuels and so on, what happens to all the time we have? The birth of leisure, a lot of empty time. Now how we use this empty time? Well, as soon as we have that vacuum of a lot of free time, we began to create all kinds of ways to entertain ourselves, to fill that time. Have we filled it only with content and with value and with high standards? Not necessarily. Look at the time you spend every day on your gadget. Now, I'm sure some of it is productive, but nobody wants to know how many hours we really waste on games 
and obviously more, perhaps more nefarious activities. What does it tell us about our generation? Is that on one hand, we have unbelievable luxury. As he puts it in his talk, he says, the humblest American enjoys the services of more servants that were once owned by the richest nobles and lives better than most ancient kings. Calls it a golden age. And that again, 63 years ago. This is the backdrop in which the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, became leader 70 years ago in 1950. Post-World War II, post-Holocaust, the world had just seen the greatest upheaval in history. The 20th century could be seen, could be described much more than Dickens did. The worst of times and the best. The first half of the century, more bloodshed than ever. Displacement. Entire communities were uprooted and destroyed. The entire globe, the entire map changed. Landscape changed. The second half of the century saw an unprecedented renaissance. In so many ways. But the void, the void. So if we once had to struggle and battle with actual enemies, wars and so on, this tremendous amount of free time has created a tremendous vacuum and void. One which we are desperate to fill because a human being, if nature abhors a vacuum, a vacuum, so does the human psyche. And we now have another new enemy. It's called apathy. It's called indifference. I always have tomorrow. I'm comfortable. We're not running from any enemies. We're not fighting any physical wars. We have a lot of time. So I could always do it tomorrow. A lack of urgency. A lack of purpose. That was not possible once upon a time when you're fighting for your survival. Your purpose was to survive. Make sure that you make ends meet. Sustain your family. Protect them from all kinds of evils. That's purpose. Today, most of that is easy to access. We have our comfort zone. This is the backdrop. This is the platform in which the Rebbe a true visionary, enters. As opposed to his, contrast to his predecessor and predecessors, they were dealing with the Bolsheviks, with the Tsar, with the Holocaust later, earlier than that, pogroms. Actually, it was Admiral Rickover that came in 1906 to America running away from the pogroms in Eastern Europe. So that had its unique challenges, but now freedom, comfort. And many of the maladies that affect our society, individually and collectively, can be directly traced to this comfort. You have more comfort and you don't have anything to fill it with. That's where all kinds of negative elements begin to enter. We'll call it spiritual toxicity, psychological emptiness, emotional vacuousness. Therefore, the deterioration of relationships, of love, of commitment, and so many things that are not just dear to us, but are vital to our very sustenance and lives. So yes, we may have physical sustenance. We may have all the comforts and the highest standard of living. But what about our emotional lives, our personal lives, our psychological lives? No one knows the statistics, but how many trillions of dollars are spent on therapy, on medication, on drugs. And whether it's healthy or unhealthy, how much is spent? What is it doing? Why are people spending that money? Because there's a need, there's a hunger. 
We want to relieve our anxiety. We want to relieve our tensions. And we'll, look, and we'll do anything to relieve that, to, re- to, to find relief. And again, this is the platform. This is the backdrop. This is the environment in which the Rebbe enters. And yes, a Jewish leader, a Torah-educated scholar of the highest caliber, but above all, a global leader. If you've read my book, Torah and Meaning for Life, you can see it in every page. I distilled the Rebbe's teachings, as I said, based on wisdom before, because all great wisdom is always based on that which precedes us. But I will now lay it out, hopefully in the best possible way, in a personal way. And let's begin with the actual word that I called it the 70th, celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Rebbe's leadership. Leadership, the very word leadership. So what the Rebbe taught is not seeking followers, not seeking people who will conform and just follow his guidance of leadership, but on the contrary, seeking to empower people to be leaders in their own right, that each one of us is a leader. When we lived in a shtetl or we lived in a small town or we lived in that pre-technology age, pre-industrial age, industrial revolution age, then you can say you lived in a healthy environment, great, not everything was healthy, but there weren't many options. Many more options create also much more misery because you feel you're, you're missing out. So one of the first and most important things is that we are not followers. We're not victims of circumstances. We're not products of circumstances. You're a leader. And leader is made up of six letters. The acronym of leader is the six revolutionary principles that we're going to review that are tools, skills, a formula for personal and global transformation. So I'll spell out the six leader, L, for long-term, a mission-driven life based on a long-term vision. The E is for empowerment, initiating. The A is for actualization. The D is for determination, persistence. The E is empathy, and the final R is redemption the conclusion, the destination, or all our work is headed toward, the ultimate objective. And each of these six are vital in general, in all times, but especially in our day and age with our unique challenges. So let's begin with the L, long-term mission. Every business on earth, Business 101 dictates Every business must have a mission statement. A business without a mission statement is impossible for it to succeed in any possible way. Even with a mission statement, companies struggle. What's a mission statement? It's a short one or two line testament expressing the purpose and mission of this organization. Google's mission statement, more or less, is to organize all the information of the world and make it readily accessible. Every company, every entity must have a mission. And that mission guides everything that that entity does, whether it's for-profit, whether it's non-profit, whether it's an educational entity, whether it's a business entity. So now ask yourself a question. If a company or business can't function without a mission statement that keeps that focal point, that focus, can we? individuals 
So then ask yourself, what is your personal mission statement? Now, most people answer immediately to be happy, to make money. I can buy buy anything I want. Maybe to bring up a healthy family. These are the general three answers that people give. They're all beautiful things, but do they qualify as a mission? Absolutely not. If you said the mission statement of a company is to have happy employees and to make money, to bring up a good, healthy family, that is a common denominator of all companies. Every company should be making money and have happy employees. A mission statement has to be unique to you and how you're going to use your unique skills, your unique talents, your unique abilities and opportunities to achieve something for the better good. So, in the first formal discourse that the Rebbe delivered, this was a year after he assumed leadership, an official assuming leadership in 1951, he began a discourse in Hebrew based on a verse in the Book of Song of Songs called Bossi Legani, Achesikala. Come to my garden, my sister, my bride. So garden is a beautiful metaphor. What does it refer to, the garden? The garden refers to this universe. Then the beginning of time, the universe was a beautiful garden. And then, through human iniquities, and through our mistakes, in a sense, the garden got concealed, like any garden. If you don't weed it, and if you don't nurture it, what will happen? It will become overgrown. You won't see it as a garden. It can become a jungle at some point. Definitely a wilderness. So human mistakes, human sins, transgressions, hurting each other, defying and betraying their own mission, yes, mission, concealed this garden, this beautiful garden. But come to my garden, because the purpose of existence, this is the mission of existence, is to return this world and make it a beautiful garden once again. But this time, a permanent one, and one far more beautiful than the way it was originally. And that is the mission of every human being on this earth. To turn this material universe into a spiritual home, a comfortable place for spirit, for the divine, for transcendence. So instead of it being a world, using psychological terms, where dog eats dog, survival of the fittest, a selfish world driven by self-interest, or in the terms of Freud, driven by the id, Rather, it becomes a world driven by doing and serving a higher good. Instead of being takers to become givers. Instead of it being a jungle or wilderness where everybody's out on their own and we only negotiate because there's something in it for me. Instead of selfishness, selflessness. And that's the true nature of existence. It's not superimposed. The nature of the human being and the nature of existence itself is a beautiful garden. So we're not creating it. We're allowing it to emerge. By doing what? By aligning ourselves to our mission. What is our mission? To build this garden. This was the opening statement. And the Rebbe went on in this talk and explained how there are stages in this process. Then the beginning of time, it was a beautiful garden. Then we wandered away from it. And then we slowly began to re reconnect and revisit and reclaim the garden within our spirits and our souls and the garden of the world itself. 
And he explains seven stages that this was done. In biblical terms, these are the seven stages from Abraham through Moses. Moses actually building a temple for the divine in this world out of material items, gold, silver, copper. And explained that our generation, meaning beginning in 1950, is the seventh generation from the founder of Chabad, who began the process, like similar to Abraham, to introduce a new dimension of transcendent energy, spiritual consciousness, and higher awareness into the human condition. And that now, in 1950, the seventh generation, we are the ones that will conclude this process. So this is a mission. It's a mission-driven life. Ask yourself, what is your mission? We're so consumed with the many different things we do, the means, we can forget the end. Many of us never even were provoked to ask this question. So today is a perfect day to ask that question and try to begin getting an answer. So that's mission, long-term vision, not living in the short-term instant gratification, the here and now, but seeing the big picture from the context, the bird's eye view from the context of a mission statement, both an individually and a collective one. And it's a beautiful concept to talk about with your family, with yourself, with your family members, with friends, with colleagues, and frankly, with everyone. Imagine all of us were asking that question. Imagine all of us were driven for, to have a mission-centric life, how life would be different. Because I believe firmly, and I say I believe, I believe something that is also much evidence to it, that we are all beautiful people. But when you are consumed with the means and not the end, and you're not driven by the mission, you can get overwhelmed and misdirected, yes, and seduced and be hijacked by the different temptations and the different forces that are in their tentacles hold us hostage and direct us to different directions. When you're mission-driven, you're looking for that mission. Everything is defined by that, fulfilling that mission. Are we perfect human beings? That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the effort. So that's the L of leader. The first requirement in being a leader, meaning controlling your circumstances, not being a victim, not being a follower, not being a product. Number two is empowerment and initiative. Now, again, all these principles were always universally and are timeless in all of history, but especially in our times due to our unique challenges, the idea of empowering someone, that they own their calling, their mission, that you don't just give it to them on a platter, they make that effort. Self-generated initiative has tremendous power in all, ter- in all segments of life because then the person knows it's not just what you're giving me, it's something I have now learned to initiate. Like they say, I'll not help you not just get fish, I'll help you learn how to fish. Which is essentially creating a self-generating force that's there long after the teacher or the educator or the parent or the mentor or the guide is there to hold your hand. They've empowered you. And with that, you become transformed. The key thing to initiative. In the Rebbe's words... In that same talk that he delivered in 1951, 69 years ago, he said, I will not decline to help, but remember each of you have your particular mission, your particular role, your particular calling. And you need to initiate that. You need to embrace it. You need to deal with, fight your own battles. 
with assistance. We all are here to help each other. And as a true mentor, the Rebbe did never decline, always helped, but he always helped people help themselves. There's nothing greater than that. So that's the second thing in a leader. A leader learns to initiate. And yes, the teacher, the leader of the leader, meaning the person who taught you to be the leader, it, it cultivates that. It gives you that confidence that you don't have to be dependent. Obviously, we always need to turn to others for help and support, but that doesn't take away from your unique individual responsibility, which so much more enriches life's experiences when you initiate. We'll soon be talking about how this applies to different aspects of life, but I want to go through these six. So now we go to number three. Actualization. Actualization has two aspects to it. One is the idea that everything in existence is, has potential for you to actualize. Everything is an opportunity. And I'll just use an example, a story. My father, in 1989, suffered a mini-stroke. And he was ended up in the hospital for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. The Rebbe called me on the day before Yom Kippur. There's a custom to give honey cake and wish each other a happy, sweet year. So he gave me the honey cake, said, give this to your father and tell him you should have a sweet year. And then with a smile, a broad smile on his face, said, tell your father that when he finishes the mission for which he was sent to the hospital, he'll be released. Interesting. He went to the hospital because of a stroke. Nobody goes to hospitals because they want to go to a hospital. And yet, everything has a deeper mission and therefore a deeper opportunity. Even negative things. So I went to the hospital, I told my father. And my father did whatever he did. He spoke to some doctors. And I remember the day after Yom Kippur, the Rebbe's chief of staff secretary came to the hospital to visit my father and asked him, the Rebbe wants to know, did you finish your job? Did you find the opportunity? Did you complete your mission there? So it wasn't just a nice expression. I thought about it so often. What a way of looking at life. That every setback, even, everything that may appear even dark, something unwanted, is an unactualized opportunity waiting for us to do something about it. And this is a consistent theme. You know, kind of empowerment that does? That means all your life, every aspect is mission-driven, and you're empowered to actualize its great potential. In the words of the Kabbalists, everything has divine sparks. These are spiritual opportunities for us to elevate. It's in the food we eat. It's in the places we travel to, the people we meet. Everything that comes our way, the positive things, the negative things, is brimming with potent energy, waiting to be released and fulfilled and realized. That's number three. Actualization. Another aspect of actualization is action-driven. You can have a mission, you can have other, all the other elements, but it can remain abstract. The true leader actualizes, meaning brings it into action. There's always an action plan. So it may be driven, it is driven by a lofty mission, but it always comes down into an action plan. Here's a specific actionable plan that we're going to implement in fulfilling that great mission. Many, many failures happen. The mission may be there. It may be a very noble mission. maybe may be a very powerful mission. And it's great potential. But implementation, execution, action. Number four. 
is the D for determination and persistence. I'll share a memory. This is a memory of a, um, let's see how old I was, a nine-year-old boy. And it was Sukkot, it's a holiday, where we sit in these portable huts that are covered by evergreen. It's beautiful when the weather is great, but it's really horrible when it's raining. And I remember as a little kid wandering off to the Rebbe's headquarters, and it was a pouring rain that Sukkot, that holiday. But the Rebbe, in his customary way, was having a fabring and a gathering in the sukkah. As a little kid, I couldn't understand, I couldn't hear. But I saw the place was packed, the sukkah, the shack. The Rebbe was going on, completely oblivious of what's going on around him, the rain. And at that point, the rain had saturated. It was really miserable. But as a child, something became etched in my psyche that I never forgot. I said to myself, and I don't know if these were the words I used as a child, but definitely today, looking back, these are the thoughts that I recall. It's not a mitzvah. There's no need to sit in the sukkah when it's raining. Yes, we eat and drink in the sukkah. Fine, so you can have a fabrinian indoors, and you don't have to eat and drink. Or what we call in this world a rain date. You push it off. No. This was a commitment that the Rebbe made. This was his custom. And he would be persistent, determined, and nothing stops it. It remained in me to the point that when I began giving classes, and this Wednesday night is a class that I give now since 1982. Now, obviously, there's ups and downs. You have a cold, you're traveling, you're not always in the mood. People don't always show up. But I never forgot that lesson. You start something good, never stop. And there'll be many reasons to stop. A certain persistence, a determination, a drive a sense of urgency. Imagine what that type of antidote that serves to counter the apathy of our times, to counter the indifference. The sense, you know, there's tomorrow. You ask an average young person today, man or woman, and this is not meant to be critical, it's just an observation. What drives you? What's most urgent in your life? Are you ready to die for anything? And I don't mean physically die, God forbid. Most young people will say, you know, it's on their list of urgency. Sports, maybe sexuality, some other entertainment. How many young people do you know, for that matter, older people say, I have a cause, a value system. I want to change the world. We all have that sense. But in actuality, life is comfortable. I'm having a good time. It's actually the words the Rebbe also used when he said about initiating. Having a good time. When there's, God forbid, something strikes, some type of trauma, some loss, then there's urgency because you need to heal. You're in pain. But when it's not there, what's driving you? This lesson of persistence. Find yourself your mission. Be empowered and initiate. Actualize every potential with a sense of urgency and determination. So those are the four that we've so far covered. We now move to number five, the E of leader, second E, empathy. Empathy. Empathy is most needed in our times. It's some people call it emotional intelligence. Whoever it was that said that people read today more and more about less and less. 
that it's not that illiteracy has gone down, is that today even illiterate people know how to read. So you can know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Bunch of quotes. I think they all come from the same source. What does that say? That we can be book smart. We can know a lot. There are people who know so much. But you look at their emotional intelligence, their IQ there can be very low. Empathy is a critical component in relationships and even empathy for yourself. It's easy to become today brain, book smart, brain smart, a lot of brain power, and hide behind that how many people that I've met in my life. Brilliant people, but they hide their vulnerable emotions. They hide behind their big minds. They play mind games with you. So empathy on every possible level is a necessity, especially in our day and age. People say, oh, I've got empathy because I have thousands of friends on Facebook. Friends, that's what they're called. But a friend, the first definition of a friend is someone you have empathy for and they have empathy for you. How many people on your Facebook friends do you even know really? And how often does empathy get diluted or even compromised? to the fact that we are hiding behind technology. So yes, it's connecting us, but it's also disconnecting. I always tell the story. I, had, I met a friend who was, we were schoolmates, we were classmates many years ago, and we were both being driven to a wedding of a mutual, a, a mutual friend. I hadn't seen him, and we, I was trying to catch up with him, but he was busy texting. We're sitting right near each other in the back seat. We're sitting, he's texting, texting. I can't get his attention. I elbow him this, I try to, nothing. So you know what I did? I texted him. He looks at his phone. He's like somewhat disoriented. He looks at me. He says, are you texting me? First he thought maybe it was delayed. From Yes, I said, I can't get your attention. He says, I'm sitting right near you. Yeah, but I can't get your attention. He says, okay, wait online. We ended, never, we ended up never having a conversation. How, when was the last time we had a heart-to-heart, eye-to-eye, soul-to-soul conversation? An open-heart conversation. Not that we don't crave for it, not that we don't need it, not that we are incapable. But I hear this often, couples tell me, they're suffering domestic issues and they're not really going, we say, we go out every night to dinner and we escape behind the dinner, talk about the food and so on, by the time we get home, we're so tired. Then you fall asleep with the television on or with your phone. Intimacy, a crisis of intimacy, a crisis of empathy. Empathy in every possible way makes things flourish, like water to a flower. Deprive it of water, it will wither. The soul, the spirit is exactly the same. It needs empathy, it needs love. The E for empathy. And finally, the final R in leader, redemption. Now, redemption sounds like a word. What does that mean exactly? Well, another word for it is destination. Redemption is both personal and global. It means redeemed from what? Redeemed from all the trappings and all the concealments and all the displacement and entanglements and misalignments or disalignments of us and our mission. So this completes the circle. A mission-driven life means it begins with a mission and focused toward a destination, toward a redemption, a redemption of everything who you are. You redeem the sparks, as I mentioned. You redeem the potential, and you come to a conclusion. And what's the conclusion? We return to the garden. Come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Come to my garden. 
What is a garden? A garden isn't just a nice, comfortable place. It's a place of delight, of beauty. Imagine your home shining, smelling. An environment like a garden. And imagine the world, a garden. A garden with seven and a half billion flowers of different species and different sorts, each complementing each other. A garden can be a symphony of music with all the different musical notes, each with its own unique mission, but at the same time recognizing that it needs all the others to be complete and whole. That's the redemption. On a personal level, it means discovering who you really are and not what you do. You know, me ask most people, you say, who are you? They give you their business card or they tell you what they do for work. And when I ask them, one second, that's what you do, that's not who you are. So some sadly nod and say, yeah, unfortunately, I have become what I do. Think about that. Who you are should dictate what you do. Now what you do has dictated who you are. Redemption means you realign that the glove doesn't dictate what the hand does, the hand dictates what the glove does. But to put it in more mystical terms, taken from that first discourse and its explanation, the world is shrouded. It's a glove. What we see around us is a glove. There are forces beneath the surface, beginning from molecular forces, atomic forces, subatomic forces, but also spiritual forces. What is the spiritual force behind everything? It's purpose. If you use a table, God forbid, and turn it into a weapon, it's not its purpose. If you use a chair and think it's a knife, it's not its purpose. The material world is a function, is a form, I'm sorry, that follows a function, a purpose. If you take a machine home, a machine, any machine, a computer, any appliance, and you don't use it according to the guidelines of the engineer, what will happen? You'll destroy it. You use the machine according to the guidelines, it will enhance your life. Life is a machine. There are things that make our lives healthier. I don't just mean physical food and healthy food. Also spiritual food. Love, honesty, nobility, gratitude, kindness. The list goes on. So when the, the human being, the full human being, just as the body is nourished, so is the soul, you are then redeeming yourself because you're aligned with the purpose. When you're not aligned with the purpose, you are in what we call a state of displacement. The opposite of redemption. A machine that's not following the guidelines for which it was built. So living up to your mission and actualizing it and all the other five steps I mentioned, the other five green ingredients, lead somewhere. They lead to a totality, you know what? Of redemption. And singular individual redemption, personal redemption leads to global redemption because at the end of the day, the entire universe is made up of seven and a half or almost eight billion people like you and I. In different terms, it's a state of heightened consciousness. Most of us, without thought, we're conscious of the here and now. I'm hungry, I want to eat. I'm tired, I want to sleep. I need this, I need that for my pleasure, for my entertainment. And that's how we work. It's not driven by a mission that drives all the details. It's driven by the here and now. That's not a redeemed life. That's not a redemption type of life. What's a redemption type of life? The same universe, the same world, the same life. But there's a higher consciousness. Every detail, even the bite you take in your mouth, is not just to feed your body. You're releasing a divine spark, a spiritual spark. In some way, it's connecting things, unifications. 
So redemption is a life of heightened consciousness in the words of Maimonides. A universe where the entire business of the world is not for material ends. Material work is a means towards spiritual growth. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, a world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So everything in this material world becomes a tool, becomes a vehicle for spiritual expression. That's a life of higher consciousness. That does not require a miracle. That's a change of awareness, a heightened awareness, a paradigm shift. And that's what the Rebbe introduced, a paradigm shift. He called it the seventh generation. The seven generations of that type of heightened spiritual consciousness that began to be taught by his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Shneir Zalm of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, who in turn, obviously, distilled the teachings before him. So it's again a one long marathon. And a marathon that leads us to this door, to this threshold of our lives. And the Rebbe's words, it's up to us now. Initiative. No one can do it for you. It's up to you. Now I want to do the next little segment of this special program. I want to take these six principles and apply it with a few examples to different segments of our lives. And I've chosen just, just for variety, relationships, educational, personal, emotional issues, technology, and religion. And I'll try to say a few words about each of these. And obviously there's so much more to be said, but it's good to have time limits because that concentrates long, short as long, hopefully. So let's start with relationships. If you take the six principles, long-term mission, and others, which I'll spell out in a moment, and let's apply it to relationships. Most relationships today, or many, are short-term, one-night stand. Two people like each other. Is there a long-term plan? We'll see. Commitment? I'm not ready. I have to build a career first. I have other issues. I have trust issues. I have emotional issues. Now think, apply the mission-centric ingredient into relationships. It changes everything. A relationship is, is going somewhere. It has a purpose. What kind of home do you want to build? What vision do you bring? What mark do you want to make in the universe? It even helps you determine whether you have a soulmate with you. Are you partners in a mission-driven life? And whatever that mission is. But mission-driven, not detail-driven, not driven by the moment. There's a force, a mission, a vision, a long-term perspective that's driving your life. Take the second empowerment initiative. Very often in relationships, one person becomes passive, one aggressive. A healthy relationship, both have to initiate. And it's not about tit for tat. It, it's reciprocal. It's also just you feel. You don't have to always wait to stand on principle. Uh, he hurt me or uh, she hurt me. I'm not doing anything until they say I'm sorry. Sometimes you have to initiate. It's not always pride. And on a, in a positive way, love should be initiated from both parties. Then it's a healthy balance. That doesn't mean all the time equally. Sometimes someone is a little weaker. Sometimes someone's not well. So the other person has to pick up the pieces. But generally a good relationship is two initiators working with each other. It's like a dance. And you don't always have one person leading. Both initiate. The third element, actualizing potential. Every relationship, not just that each partner actualize potential, but they should also help the other actualize. Your spouse has a talent in music, encourage them to, to follow up on it, to realize it, in addition to your own doing so. 
and your own potential. Each should do that. It adds a whole depth, a whole new dimension to relationships because besides what you have with each other, there's also a richness that the person's feeling fulfilled, that they're not just your spouse, they're not just a mother or father. They also have talents that are actualized. When the talent's not actualized, it remains embedded and can even create resentment and implodes and can create all kinds of problems. Number four, determination, persistence. I think everyone understands the importance of that in relationships. There will be rocky moments. There'll be times where you say, oh, I want to give up. No. There's a mission driving this, and sometimes there are going to be ups and sometimes downs. Like in any navigation, there are storms. There are calm times. You navigate through it all. Empathy, of course. Empathy, compassion, feeling for the other. And not just always thinking of calculating and saying, oh, you did this to me and therefore I'm hurt. Empathy. Let your empathy flow. Sometimes to overlook certain things. Something important, have a discussion, but don't ever let your empathy be compromised. And finally, redemption, of course. Redemption means aligned, that you're aligned and your, your relationship is redeemed because it's actualizing all that potential and you're living up to the higher purpose. It's not driven by any distractions. So the mission is reaching a destination and every relationship needs all these six elements. Let's apply this to education. Education as well. Education isn't just accumulation of facts, one detail after other. There's a mission, there's a vision to education, a long-term picture. What are we educating the child? And that immediately leads to, num- leads to number two, initiating. You're not just teaching facts and data and information, you're teaching methodology. You're teaching a formula, an approach. You're teaching the child, the student, to initiate, to be empowered to be able to initiate, to be a flame that rises on its own. So it's not just fact-based education, it's empowerment-based education. You're teaching methodology. So even when the teacher is not there, the student knows, has the tools to find answers. So you didn't just teach the answers, you found them to how to find the answers. It's a very different type of education process. Actualizing potential, oh, oh, that's like the key to all of education, is to actualize potential. Determination, persistence, empathy, and, re- and redemption. So determination, of course, is to teach a student, never give up, you keep forging ahead. And it's not just about, I said data, I should go back and say one more thing, character development. You're teaching character, that their character is refined. And therefore the determination is so much part of it. Be persistent, do not give up, don't allow your setbacks to affect you. And empathy. So much education today is about minds. The empathy, the classes you remember, the things that have shaped us as individuals are when we felt someone cared about us. The art of communication. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. An education that's vital. As a matter of fact, you learn more from someone who may know less, but they care, than someone who knows more but doesn't care. Obviously, you want the best of both worlds. Empathy. Emotional intelligence. Feeling that you care about life. That all the information education you have is all a means to be able to be a more loving person, a more giving person. And finally, redemption. Here too, redemption, as I described it, higher consciousness. A redemption of understanding that education is not just about becoming an executive and making money and being powerful and influential. It's also about fulfilling the mission of your life. 
the first step of coming to actualize it, that you're driven by a place where matter and energy fuse together, <clears throat> where form and function come together, where soul and body, where what you do and who you are are aligned. In personal emotional issues, well, which means all psychological issues, you're dealing with fear, with insecurity, with inhibitions, with jealousies, with anger, depression, the list goes on. Obviously, I must qualify that when a person needs professional help, you need professional help. But in addition to that, these six principles can help give direction. All healthy healing and healthy living emotionally is based on having a mission. Many of us who are like lost and don't have a uh, rudder, lack of mission, what do you think happens? It creates a lot of problems because you're looking, you're looking. What am I supposed to be doing? So finding a mission in life can be a great preventive medicine to many and many issues. Initiating. You're not a victim. Teaching people that you may have suffered. People may have hurt you, but you're not a sufferer. You're not their victim. You're not a product of theirs. Your identity is intact, and you can initiate. Give people small things to initiate. It builds courage. It builds confidence. And you see, you know what? I'm, I can be a success. Many of us feel we're failures because we were invalidated, we were hurt, we were dismissed, absentee, abandonment, abuse, of course, all invalidates a person to the point you start self-loathing when it comes to an extreme. Initiating re-empowers you. I can initiate, I can do something. Give a person a project. It could be a small project. You can't run a marathon 22 miles if you can't run a mile. Run a mile, run a half a mile. Show some small progress, small victories lead to larger ones. So you need to initiate that. Number three, actualization and potential opportunities, including your own emotional issues. If you feel depressed, if you feel down, everything is an opportunity. That's an opportunity for introspection, where others who may feel very comfortable are not doing that, for soul searching, for finding deeper strengths, for finding new support by going away from the toxic elements in your life and finding fresh air. Everything is an opportunity. It's a tremendous lesson in healing. Determination, persistence, I think is also quite clear because it's so often that we give up. We say, okay, I did it for a week, two weeks, five weeks. You have to be persistent. And you have to have people that are there for you, that you can lean on, <clears throat> who help you be persistent. Have friends, colleagues, mentors, and tell them, if you don't see me following up, please call me. Kick me in the pants. Invite them in a loving way. People you trust, of course. Empathy. Well, all emotional, our emotional lives and all personal issues at the heart always lies with love. Either love given, healthy love given, or love deprived. So love, like water, is a nourisher. It's a nurturer. So love lies at the heart of everything. And when you always find situations where people feel emotionally somewhat compromised, love is always an ingredient that needs to be introduced. You can always trace to lack of love or a lack of healthy love. You know, conditional love, a love that was used to control, obviously is not healthy love. And finally, redemption. Yeah. Redemption means there's hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel you know that you can be victorious. 
There was a custom in the olden days where people with a military would march the opening of the war. Before they even fought the first battle, they would march to a march of victory. What do you mean victory? You're not even, you even fought a battle yet. It's a confidence, knowing I'm going to reach a destination. I will be redeemed because my soul is pure, it's beautiful, it's a garden, it's a flower in a garden, just waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be freed. In the words of Michelangelo, when they asked him, how do you sculpt those beautiful angels in the marble? He said, I see the angels trapped in the marble and I carved and carved and set them free. The flowers are there, the garden is there. It could be covered with dust. You ever go in the forest and you, meet, you find a piece of stone, it's a lot of moss, overgrowth and so on, you start cutting away and you see letters. It's like a fascinating, it's like letters, engraved letters that have been covered by layers and layers of dust or dirt. So our souls can be, can be trapped in marble, in concrete, in other substances, waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be released. Technology. Technology is such a powerful force in our lives, as I described earlier. Technology. But technology is neutral, morally neutral, spiritually neutral. They used to say, junk in, junk out. Is a knife good or bad? It depends what you use it for. If you use it to cut a piece of bread and food, it's, a, it's an excellent tool. If you, God forbid, use it to hurt someone, it's a weapon. Technology is exactly the same. Technology needs a soul. It needs a purpose. If technology is just a tool. It's like having a big tool chest. You have no idea what to do with a hammer. So you try this, you try that. What do we do when we hit technology? You go online, on your phone, your mobile. You start searching. You know, your daily news feeds or your entertainment or the games or whatever it is that you're looking for. What's driving it all? Really? Either habit, routine, a friend sent you something. You check most of them. It's like just random almost. Some of it became part of your habit. Some of it is even productive. Mission-driven technology. The Rebbe spoke about that so often, about the idea that technology is not just here. It's here to be used as a tool to reach people with a kind message, with a few beautiful words, with garden-like messages and garden-like feelings and sentiments. So fine, use it for business, for entertainment, but remember, never forget its purpose and its mission. Its long-term picture. Why is there technology? Technology is not a creation of the 21st or 20th century. It was there embedded just like electricity from the beginning of time, waiting to be released. As I said earlier, waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be actualized. So mission, initiating, not waiting for something to come to you, what they call pull, but push, something you initiate. Send out a beautiful message. Don't just be a recipient of email or social media or other forms of uh, data coming your way. You stream. Not everything being streamed to you. Say something good. Say something mission-driven. So you're initiating empowerment. Actualizing the potential of technology itself. It's an enormous power waiting to be actualized for good purposes. Persistence. Well, here, I don't know if persistence exactly fits in, but you can say persistence is doing this all persistently, not just sporadically. Empathy, of course, the message of empathy and not let the machine become an depersonalized force that separates us, but one that connects us. And redemption, redeeming the purpose of technology. All pretty self-understood. And finally, religion. Religion. There are studies that show today that in America, 
5% of Americans, and probably the Western world as well, believe in some form of spirituality, some God, some, some form of faith. However, only 40 or 45% can relate to our religion. That's a big discrepancy. Why? Because religion is associated with ritual, with tradition, with conformity. These are neutral words, but then it gets worse. With pain, with punishment, with punitiveness, with condescension, with judgment, with fear, with anger. Check it out. I've traveled the world, and I know the reaction. Religion. The Woody Allen cynicism. Spirituality is associated with spirit, free spirit, transcendence, music, soaring. That's a big disparity between the two. The Rebbe, and one of the most fascinating things that touched me, bridged the two. He brought the SPI into the ritual, spiritual. Understanding that ritual, without the spirit and soul within it, becomes mechanical becomes by rote, becomes robotic, and therefore can become destructive, because we just do it as a machine, lacking the empathy. So religion, take all these six elements and apply it to religion, you see you won't call it religion anymore. You'll call it, you know what you'll call it? Transcendence, you'll call it higher consciousness. So let's go through it. Mission. A mission-driven religion, not just a religion, okay, we're doing things because we do things. Not that there is sometimes value in being, following certain rituals. But there's no whole, wholeness, wholesomeness. There's no vitality, no passion. That, can't usually, that usually will not result in good. That will usually not yield good results. Mission-driven. It's driven by a vision, by a long-term vision that the faith, the connection to our traditions are meant to change the world, to transform the world into a garden. A garden. Think of it that way. Then religion is not divorced. The body and soul, the mechanics, are like the glove to the hand and soul within, which is the passion and the mission and the garden, the beauty within it, the flowers. The second thing, initiating. We're not just here recipients. You know what? The dogma of religion, so many people are turned off. I'm told what to do. And you can't ask questions. You're silenced. No, initiate. Yes, we follow guidelines. Just like a musician at a, at a piano or an instrument of course, there's musical notes. But we're not expected just mechanically to read the notes. Add your personality to it. Add your passion to it. So you can hear the same song played by one person who's just by rote mechanically reading the notes. Another person plays that same song, and it comes alive. It's magic. Transports you to another time and place. So yes, use the musical notes. Don't tamper with them, because we can't change musical notes. But you can infuse it with a spirit, a vitality, a passion. That makes it uniquely yours. You're initiating and empowered by that ability to do so. Actualization. So many people say religion. No, no, it's not about actualizing my potential. Forget about it. It's about me following and conforming to the rules of the community. Me? No one cares about me. And when you start wandering too much and thinking about your actualization, people say you're dangerous. You'll be excommunicated to the extreme. No, that's not religion. God created the human being with pot- tremendous potential, with skills, with talents. If you have any faith in God, which is, of course, what religion is based on, it's also the faith in that God gave you all this potential and to actualize yourself. 
Yes, actualizing yourself doesn't mean you have to defy everyone around you. You can cooperate and work, but it's about you also being part of it. Just like you initiate, you actualize. Determination and persistence. Well, that can be in a negative way. You're just determined, like almost a religious fanatic, but that's not what we're discussing here. We're discussing a determination of making sure that religion, and even that word I don't frankly like, as you may know, ritual, but we'll talk about it in the context of tradition, should be a force for the good, an urgency to change the world, to bring back the garden that it was always meant to be. Empathy, oh, that antithesis of judgmentalism, of anger, of punitiveness, punishment, excommunication, cutting off if you're not following my, my, my way, my religious path, judgment, as I mentioned, divisiveness, empathy, heart. When Hillel was asked, the great sage, what does the entire Torah tell it to me standing on one foot? You know what he said? Don't do unto others that you don't want done to yourself. What you dislike, don't do unto others. That is the entire Torah. The rest is commentary. The entire Torah, not just part of it, everything. Even the laws between man and God, even the laws that are not seemingly between human beings. It's all about love. Or the, 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 it's, in its negative language, it means not to do unto others that you don't want done unto you. The, the positive side is love another as yourself. That's the entire Torah. Why did that get lost? Where did that get lost? And why did it get lost? Well, the Rebbe reintroduced it. I'm not saying no one else did, but he reintroduced it in a revolutionary way, into a system, into a methodology, that everything we do is driven by love. That doesn't mean we can't have different opinions, but you never invalidate. You never personalize a disagreement. There's always love and empathy and care. You know why? Because we're all part of one reality and we're all children of God. And we're all created in the divine image and we're all a garden and we're all a flower. Despite whether we're concealed or not concealed, despite whether it's trapped in marble or whatever other substance. And, that's what, and there's much to love when there are flowers within. So empathy, the thing that nurtures, that nourishes. And finally, redemption. Yes, redemption. All of religion is not about an end in itself. Do this, do that. That's vital. We need to have a system. We need to have disciplines. We need to have rules and regulations. But it's going somewhere. It's a journey toward a destination. You know what kind of destination? A glorious one. A beautiful one. A one where there's total fusion between matter and energy. Between spirit, soul, and body. Between the transcendent and the imminent. Between who we are and what we do. So religion is not just, oh, I'm doing a bunch of rituals. No. You're spiritualizing the world. You're bringing back its flowers, its beauty. And by doing so, you transform the very material world into a garden, a permanent one, and a more beautiful one than ever. So it began as a garden, it wandered off, and now we return back to the garden. Now this is but a taste of some of the, the revolutionary teachings of my great mentor. And I want to say this on a personal note. I don't know who I would be today. I was a 16, 17-year-old thinking person, skeptic. I had a lot of questions. I saw mediocrity. I saw lack of excellence. I saw many beautiful people too. I was not an abused person, so I was not angry. I was not disappointed. 
because I, but I was always skeptical. Long story short, I'm not going to go through all the details now. Yes, meeting the teachings of the Rebbe first and then the Rebbe changed my life. And you maybe can see it in the way I'm describing myself. It changed my life. It gave me all these six things. So I don't speak theoretically here. It gave me a sense of mission and urgency. Everything I do today, the classes I give, the writings I teach, the, pro, the places I travel to, is driven by this mission. It hasn't changed since I'm 17. Because it touched my soul. I would say it allowed my soul to emerge. Remember, the flower was there, but I didn't know it. So I have beyond the debt of gratitude to the, my mentor, my Rebbe. But it's even beyond that. That's a personal note. It changed my life in all six ways. Empowerment, initiating, actualizing potential, action-based, determination and persistency, and persistence, empathy, and redemption in my personal way. But something far greater. You know, that can be an individual thing I experienced with my mentor and great. And I'm sharing that. I absolutely, without doubt, believe that these principles are for all of us. Some of you never met my mentor, as I did not meet his mentor. But we are all links in a chain. And I feel privileged. I feel honored. I feel beyond. I feel ecstatic, to be honest, to share with you that which touched me so deeply, which I know without doubt is a proven formula. I've seen it with my own eyes, not just in my own life. And people of all walks of life, I'm talking about, people call me, some people call me the rabbi of atheists. Because I've spoken to atheists and agnostics, and I know the world somewhat. And I've seen these teachings. Without necessary, there's no need, there's no strings attached here. You don't have to buy into anything. You don't have to become a member. The teachings are their own merit. Explore them. You'll be amazed, the relevance to your life. Infusing you with purpose and mission with the ability to initiate and be empowered. Persistence. Endurance. Actualization. Empathy and redemption. And redemption is the key thing I want to conclude with. Because in the words of the mystics, and especially the words of the Rebbe, my teacher, our teacher, our Rebbe, Rebbe means teacher, mentor, we are at the end of a marathon, a marathon that from the beginning of time has been attempting to regain the garden. It's like people, the search for paradise, the search for the fountain of youth, for utopia, it has thousands of names. We're calling it the garden. The search for the garden. We've all been searching for it from the beginning of time. And in all kinds of ways. Some of them healthy ways, some unhealthy ways, some completely off, some completely on. But it's an accumulative effort of the human race from the beginning of time. Building blocks. Every good deed, every sacrifice, every act of nobility, every kind act, every kindness. Every time a mother and father smiled to a child. All accumulated billions and trillions of little building blocks. Bricks. When they accumulate, we come to the end of the marathon. The last leg of the journey. And then it erupts in a positive way, just like a volcano erupts after the pressures build up here. It's erupting with tremendous amount of goodness and kindness. And you'll say, what about all the evil and the negative? Well, we're taught the evil and negative are temporary. So they can be erased. Goodness is permanent. It's divine and permanent. So the accumulation will erupt. And in the Rebbe's words, he said, this is the time. Open our eyes. 
We have a mission. You know what our mission is? To bring that divine presence, that higher consciousness, down to earth. In the earthly way, that in this material universe, as I described earlier, in every fiber of existence, in every part of your life, your table, your chairs, your food, your work, your friends, your vacations, every element of your life, including technology, has tremendous potential waiting to be released. When you align it, not to selfish gain, not to neutral activities, but to something higher purpose by doing it for good deed, increasing in acts of goodness and kindness, you know what you do? You change the universe. And remember, we are midges that stand on shoulders of giants. So it's not just you. You could say, what am I, one speck among seven point seven and a half or more billion people? But it's not you alone. It's an entire accumulation of a marathon. And that your one act, your one word, your one thought can tip the scale. That's the attitude. And we don't say, we initiate. You don't say, well, I don't know about other people. It's about you and I. And the words of the Rebbe that has penetrated my soul so often and brings me to tremendous uh, both love and sense of urgency says it's up to you. I have done my part. What will you do? The next step is yours. You have the power to finish the job, a job that all of history is waiting for from the beginning of time. So I ask you as I ask myself, what will be our next step? The next step is yours. Thank you so much. If you're interested in more information and connect, contacting with us, there's plenty of more that we, this comes from in MeaningfulLife.com. Please take advantage of all our resources. Stay in touch. We'd love to partner with you in making this world into a beautiful garden again. And it's very close to the surface. Yes, there are all kinds of setbacks that we may see, but as we've discussed, there's much more to it. So I invite you to partner with us, MeaningfulLife.com. It's been an honor and a pleasure. The 70th anniversary, the beginning of the 7th anniversary, there will be more programs that will discuss further these revolutionary principles. And thank you very much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.